Good morning, everybody. Uh, I'm Wes here in the Rabbi Samuel Chill Sanctuary. I want to begin with just thanking so many people. I want to thank uh, Caitlin Bellina, uh, our colleague who is the Zoom host. I want to thank Brian and Amy for their combined love of Israel and Hartman and technological expertise, which allows this whole moment to happen. And I want to thank uh, all of you for being on the call this morning. Let, what I'd like to do uh, is just send one minute framing this. This is the conversation we're having today and that Danielle and Yossi had uh, on the podcast is literally, literally the oldest conversation. It's the newest installment of the oldest conversation. It's the freshest installment based on today's headlines of the most ancient conversation in the Jewish sacred canon, literally. If you open the, what's the first verse of the Jewish people? Like what's the first sacred verse? The first of the Jewish people? It is Genesis 1.1. That's our first verse. First verse, Genesis 1.1. Breshit bara Elohim et hashemayim ve'et ha'aretz. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And Rashi, the commentator who lived in France from 1040 to 1105, Rashi's first question is, why does the Torah begin that way? In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And Rashi's answer, it's the first Rashi, literally the first Rashi is, the Torah begins here because it is going to happen that the world is going to say to the Jewish people, listimatem, you are thieves because you are now living in Israel. Listimatem, you are thieves, you're corrupt, you're wrong, you're evil, you're bad, you don't belong there, you're a foreign element in there, you have stolen the land of the people who really deserve the land. Listim atem, you, the Jews, you Jews are thieves, you Jews are thieves. Rashi's first comment is that the world is going to say over and again, you Jews are thieves. And Rashi's question is, how do we answer that charge? He gives an answer. His answer is not our concern now. But the Amnesty International report is basically listimatem, you Jews are thieves. And it's the freshest installment of an old charge. Now, here's what, what we're doing this morning to frame it out. We're doing something that, at least in my own experience at the temple, we've never done before. This is a bit of an experiment. We're running an experiment, which is we are going to collectively listen to about 20 to 22 minutes of the podcast, and we're going to do it together. I'm assuming that most of you have already heard it. You don't have to have heard it, but most of you have probably heard it. Um, and we're going to listen to it again. And that's valid reason. That's valid to do because the Talmud says famously, you cannot compare somebody who has learned something 101 times to somebody who has only learned it a hundred times. Learning it a hundred times is only learned it a hundred times. 101 times you get something else out of it, something that you didn't see the first hundred times. So you can't compare listening to this a second time to listening to it the first time, but we're also listening to it together. And here's the ask that I wanna ask each of you. We all obviously care a lot about Israel and we all come to this moment with a lot of convictions. Here's my ask, and, and this is what the conversation is gonna rotate around. Um, in what ways, if at all, did the dialogue between Daniel Hartman and Yossi Klein Halevi 
change your thinking. My ask of each of you is an open mind. And I define open mind as you heard this conversation, you heard this debate, you heard this spirited principle disagreement between two people who know and love Israel. And somehow it changed your thinking. And I'm going to be asking in the conversation, the delta, what's the change that this conversation has had in your thinking about this very ancient question? So with that, Brian, if you can play, settle in for about 22 minutes. When we're done, um, if you would like to speak, chat to Amy Klein that you would like to speak. Amy will call on you and we'll get the conversation going. Thank you all. In our last episode of For Heaven's Sake, Yossi, Ilana, and I discussed the problems of allowing our Israel conversation to be dominated by the A-words, by the apartheid anti-Semitism dichotomy. And now here we are, two weeks later, with a report by Amnesty International labeling Israel as an apartheid state, and we recognize that even though it's an A-word, we have to talk about it. The Amnesty report instantly turned into the main Israeli topic of the day. And the outrage amongst Jews is understandable. Amnesty has not only critiqued the occupation, but the very essence of Israel. It's not 1967, which is on the table, but it is really 1948. It is the political assault pretending to be an objective inquiry. And as such, it deserves to be rejected by anyone who cares about the state of Israel. But yet at the same time, I question, and this is what we're gonna talk about today, I question whether how we're responding to the report is really productive, or productive at least across all the fronts that we are currently combating. Should we allow our opponents to dictate our Israel conversation and what happens to us when we do? The Jewish people usually finds itself dealing with one crisis or another. How do we navigate threats without allowing crisis to overwhelm us? And how is expressing going to help us reclaim the growing public spaces we are losing? Most importantly, how will it help us cultivate love and concern amongst young Jews for Israel? Yossi, it's wonderful to be with you again. And most people who talk about it haven't read it, all 220, I think, pages of it. I think the purpose of the length is to sort of make sure that you don't read it. But, <laughs> <laughs> it's like, but you, you want to, before, before we do an analysis of, let's just, what, what's the document as you hear it? So if I had to give a title, a, um, a conceptual title for what this document really is, uh, I would borrow the title of a book written by Rashid Khalidi, the Columbia University uh, Palestinian professor, called uh, The Hundred Year War Against Palestine. And what's so extraordinary about this report is that there isn't even a pretense of nuance. And, and I was frankly disappointed, Danielle, in, in amnesty. I thought there would be at least a fig leaf, at least some way of, of concealing the relentless, malicious nature of the assault, but nothing. It's 100 years of assault on Palestine. Now, in order to tell that story, you have to completely leave out the parallel story, which is 100 years of war against the Jewish return home. This is a conflict that's really about both of those stories. 
And you can't understand this conflict without understanding how each people has experienced this conflict. And yet there isn't a hint that there's another side to this story. 1948, 1967, they just happened. There was no Israeli peace offers ever. There wasn't a partition plan for the... There's no context, zero. Let me give you though one small example that I know from my personal experience, which will tell you something about not just the enmity behind the report, but, but the lies and the sloppiness. They have a line here where they talk about the, the Israelis who live in the post-67 East Jerusalem neighborhoods. 225,178 Jewish Israelis live in these apartheid neighborhoods. As, as they're characterized in the report. Now, I live in one of these apartheid neighborhoods, and in my building, and I've said this on at least one of our previous podcasts, literally half the families in this building are Arab-Israeli. Now, there are hundreds of Arab-Israeli families living in French Hill, in Pisgat Ze'ev, post-67 neighborhoods, but you won't get any sense of nuance. There's no discrimination here. And so that's, that's just my little corner of reality that I came across, you know, on page 14 of the report. So reading this, and one, one last point, Danielle, which is reading this report should have been an acutely uncomfortable experience for an Israeli. It should have been a credible account of the moral toll of occupation, where we have failed, what we need to own, but the report is so relentlessly one-sided. It's such a sustained assault that there isn't any room for self-reflection here. And all one can do as an Israeli is push back and defend yourself. But don't you, Yossi, you know, I hear you. And I, I felt it right when I was reading the executive summary, because I read every word of the executive summary. I got tired of reading all the rest. Um, you know, <laughs> It was that, um, but that's but, what the rest of it is like. It's it, oh, I know, it's, I know, it's, it's I know. It's a very and I, accurate I, I, executive summary. No, I I saw where when they described the war in Gaza, the adjectives, the terms. Yeah. It, it, from the beginning, you literally felt it was almost a blood libel. The language itself, it was as you said, it was so unnuanced. It's just here you had. Palestinian militants, I don't even know if they called them militants, I forget the exact word, fired. It was like, here it was, it was three words, and then there were four sentences on Israel's onslaught. It was, it was just, like, as you said, they weren't even trying. They weren't even trying, and they were also pasting and cutting, literally. Oh, whole slews yeah. of, uh, of sentences from Human Rights Watch and other documents. It wasn't even an original document. It literally is... The same clear move. So I'm with you. And, and again, I'm going to use another A word. You know, it, 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 it smelled anti-Semitic almost in, 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 its, in its use of adjectives. And, and, but, you know, so you and I just said what we said. And now a bunch of Jews are going to feel really good. They're cheering. But you must, we, we're, we're, who's listening, Yossi, to this critique? The fact is, is that this is a, a serious mainstream organization. You can call them anti-Semitic, but no one's listening. And um, you must be, very, like, for, I'll, I'll pretend as if it's you for a second, you know, you must be very frustrated. Now, you and I, we don't disagree on an analysis of the report, but sometimes we disagree on what we should do about it. 
So here, you, we started with your analysis. Has anybody who doesn't agree with us already checked out? Is it effective? Are, are you frustrated? Because here it is, there's a document that you want to say no one should even be listening to. But the fact is that people are. Look, of course I'm frustrated, but I think there are two questions that you're raising. The first is what's effective. And the second, which I'm not sure is related to the first, is what is our responsibility to say at a time like this? You know, we've just been dealt a major blow by, as you put it, uh, one of the most credible human rights organizations in the world. And not to respond because no one is taking us seriously doesn't absolve us from the need to respond. You know, when you say we're talking to ourselves, first of all, I need to talk to the Jewish people. I need to explain to my fellow Jews, before I speak to the world about this, what this means to us. And what worries me, Danielle, you know, I'm obviously, you know, fully with you on the need for a values conversation on Israel. I'm with you on the need for nuance. I've made a profession <laughs> out of out of being professionally nuanced. And so I, I, I'm with you. But there are certain moments in the life of a people when you have to just cry out in pain and outrage. I feel violated here. I feel my being has been assaulted. It's so much deeper than my good name. It's my legitimacy. Everything that I love is being assaulted here. So how do you respond, Yossi? Because I could tell you just from the out, see, I know you're nuanced. I know you've made a profession about being nuanced and a profession about being spontaneous. <laughs> <laughs> we're nuanced and we're, we're, we're right there. I, I know you. But do you think the nature of the way you opened up moves anybody? Well, I, I want to honestly talk to you about it. Like, who, who's going to buy it? Who's going to buy this type of critique? And Or what do we need to do? You want to fight back? I'm with you. I'm right with you. I accept that there's moments we have to fight back. But what's an effective fight back, Yossi? Look, I think we need multiple strategies. And one of those strategies needs to be making the case for our story. And what worries me, you know, thinking about young American Jews, and that's the, in, in some ways, the audience that I am most concerned about reaching on this issue are Jewish kids on campuses. They're on the front line. They're the ones who are going to take the heat. They will be dealing with the repercussions in the most immediate way. And I feel this deep responsibility to be in conversation with them. And so the question really is what works? Now, ordinarily, I'm with you in that we need a values conversation when we speak to young American Jews. We need a conversation. You're already but, debating me without am, me talking. I, so I, good. I, I'm I am debating you because I know you, Daniel. I know it's you're coming. Like, you're preempting my argument. <laughs> well, I'm also responding to the way you, to, to the comments you made when you opened the podcast. And, you know, when you said that we're under assault routinely, we go from crisis to crisis, and all that is true. But again, when the world's preeminent human rights organization effectively denies Israel's right to exist in so many words, in many, many words, uh, I think that's a moment that requires, again, a multiple 
response. I'm with you. But now I want to yes. ask you, though, I want to push you on your response. Yes. I'm with you. And we're we're not that far. You know, maybe one of us does one more than the other one in the way we balance what we're doing. But we both agree we need this multi-pronged approach. And that sometimes when you're at war, who is it? Yuda Kurtzer says, you know, when you're at war, you fight back. It's like there are times and there's no time for nuance, etc. I'm with you. You have to fight back. I want to talk about how you fight back. And I, I want to mirror something back because I heard you. I just want to give you my feeling. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm a really a strange person. I know that. I'm 63-year-old liberal Orthodox Zionist, and I think I'm a millennial. <laughs> like, I, <laughs> like I have this, I, like I think I'm, I, whatever. So listen, my little fantasies, what do you care? You know, it, it is nothing to, it's just whatever. I, I, but I can just tell you, when someone starts by telling me, you know, it has no nuance, it doesn't have any context, you've already lost me. You know, what about what happened to us? Just that opening fight, it's gone, yes. I don't think that, you know, Daniil Hartman as a millennial, <laughs> as a millennial wannabe, you know, as somebody who's struggling and trying to figure out my relationship with Israel, when somebody tells me Israel's an apartheid state and my response is, it's not nuanced, what about the context? I don't think that's fighting back effectively, Yossi. Okay, what would you do? See, that's part of my frustration. See, I'm not a good fighter backer. That's just not what I do. I'm not trained in it. When I need to fight back, I listen to you. Um, I, you're, it's, it's a much bigger part of your conversation. See, because for me, my primary audience is the same audience that you spoke about. It's the same audience. I want to make sure that the Jewish people keep their relationship with Israel. And I know that the dangers of the amnesty report aren't even in the details themselves. Nobody's reading the 200, no one's reading. They're not even reading. All they're reading is a, is I hope a 600 word article on it. Normally they'll probably read, I don't know, 150 words on something. And so the lack of nuance is not even what, what they're hearing or what makes it even more insidious is the fact that now you've had report after report making it almost self-evident that Israel is apartheid. Yep, that's that's what's on the conversation. You know, and even in the report, they start by speaking about how apartheid is a racist. Is this a racial conflict? Is this a national conflict? Is it a political conflict? They know the categories they're talking about and they make absolutely, you know, it's just a blanket leap. But the danger is, is that it, it's sort of becoming mainstream. Yeah, it goes back to when Zionism is a racism category too. When somebody speaks a lie enough times, it sort of becomes a fact. But it's interesting because the UN in 1975 lacked the authority that amnesty has. Right. So that makes it even more. UN was blatantly politicized, as I believe amnesty yeah, I is as even, well, yeah. but that's not the perception. Right. So, and I don't know if you can win that battle. Again, I, I don't know if the way to attack amnesty, I certainly don't believe that it is about saying you're not nuanced or that you're you're just telling one side of the story because the, the power of the apartheid word is that there is no yes, but. You know, you're an apartheid country, but I could sort of understand because you've had a hard time, you know, in this. And they, once you are apartheid, you've sort of crossed the Rubicon and you're, you're just, it just doesn't matter what the context is. It either is or isn't. And part of what I'm wondering, and I know I, I want to try something. And I don't even, can I say something, Yossi, that I don't know if I agree with myself on? Could we do that? Because, you know, we're safe here, you and I, and it's just me and you, nobody's listening. Let's just try something. You know, I, 
I really do believe that if we want to be effective, sometimes fighting back is not that effective. Sometimes it's about talking about, and I don't want to talk about the Israel we want, but I think it might be about saying that, yes, these are some of the areas that Israel is challenged and we have to do better on, and entering some form of an engagement with not the apartheid claim, but the moral challenges raised by that apartheid claim. Because, see, if there's a battle, I know how to battle. You know, you, I, we're in the army, we know how to go to war. But here I'm just, I'm wondering whether, you know, maybe I'll use this analogy. Tell me if this makes sense. I, I was in the tank corps, and in the tank corps we used to have a saying, if you can't fix it with a five kilo hammer. Use a 10. <laughs> use a 10 kilo hammer. That, that was the army, you know, it's like this 10 kilo hammer. And that was the language, you know, bang it even harder and harder and harder. But the reality is, is that it's, you know, we use tanks less and less today, and uh, we have to use much more precision. And maybe a conversation about what apartheid is, talking about some of the challenges. It's just, it's, it's just a different battle. And I think that we come in full-fledged with our 10 kilo hammers, trying to discount amnesty. And then someone's saying, oh, you're attacking them? That's ad hominem. What about the argument? And you haven't said anything about the content of the argument. It's so when we call them, I have a feeling, and I'll, let me, when we call them anti-Semitic, we lost the audience that we want to reach. So if you want to fight back, I don't know how. I don't know, I'm, I'm ready to push back because it needs a detailed response that no one's going to read, so that's the other problem. But maybe the only way to talk about it is to talk about some of and embracing some of the moral criticisms, but saying these aren't, a, it's not apartheid. There is a national conflict there's two national groups at war. It's not a racial conflict. And then talk about that war and talk about what we need to do better. I'm just wondering whether whether that might be more effective to the same audience, Yossi, that you say you well, want to reach. First of all, and, Danielle, and first too. of all, we've been attacked by a 10-pound hammer here. And that's the nature of this assault. And when you're under that kind of attack, when you've been called an apartheid state, which is really the equivalent of being called a Nazi state, you know, for, for much of the world, there's no difference. If you're an apartheid state, if you're a, a Jewish supremacist state, and that's part of the language as well here, you're beyond redemption. And so for you to come along and say, well, you know, we need to do better and let's have that values conversation. Not at this moment not right now. That's the conversation for the morning after. When somebody is coming at you with this kind of a weapon, you need to push back. You need to defend yourself. I'm with you, Yossi, but I'm asking what I'm asking of you. And initially, I agree with you, right? I, I'm not arguing about the need to push back. I'm just asking whether it's effective. And I would say there's a difference. See, you set the table. But maybe we have to distinguish something that you didn't say beforehand. There's a difference between what I do in Congress. There's a difference between what I do in the newspapers. There's a difference between what I do legally. You know, when, or when I do in European governments who also have been rejecting this. There, I just need a fight back. But when I'm talking to Jewish audiences, is what you said you're one, your primary yes. audience. So that, it's not a fight. That's the problem is we're confusing it. That group, the minute you start to fight, you'll see, okay, I think so look, where I agree with you is that the language of anti-Semitism is not effective. 
even though I think a case can be made. I said it myself. Yes. I almost yes. want to take it back. But I literally yes. felt when I was yes. reading this document, I was reading it. I literally felt this well, was a bloodline. Yes. I felt the way, the insidious nature of the words, the adjectives, the way sentences were constructed. But I could talk to you about it and, you know, and, and you'll always agree with somebody who's going to keep saying, you know, this is like, this is my, 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 you know, well, you and I will always meet there. But, but I know that the minute I talk that way, there's a group yeah. of people who aren't going to listen. It's the same old, old, same old that. defense. I accept that. But what I think we need to start teaching ourselves and urging American Jews and Jews generally, Israelis, to begin adopting is a two-pronged language. We need to be speaking two languages simultaneously about Israel. The first language is an unequivocal pushback against those who would turn us into the world's worst country. Now, bear with me for a moment here, Daniel. This report was issued on the eve of the Olympics in Beijing. Now, if you are the world's preeminent human rights organization, wouldn't you use this strategic moment to issue a report on China's treatment of the Uyghurs, which really is documented genocide? Why would you waste this moment against a small country in the Middle East? There's something that's so outrageous here in the move to criminalize Israel that we need to learn how to speak in that language unequivocally, with unequivocal outrage. But that's only half of the language. There's another language we need to speak. And the other language is the language that you're talking about. But your language alone, without the outrage, is inadequate. I accept that. It comes out weak and in a way that you don't want it to be. You don't want it to sound apologetic, but it comes out that way. Yossi Klein on amnesty, you know, no, no one's going to, but we need to come up 10, 300 word places where it's not lack of nuance and not telling my story, but where we call out the absolute lie. I want us to do it better, Yossi, because what happens is, is that when we're talking to the converted, now I'm not a millennial, us altacockers, you know, us older, the older people. You know, the minute you start talking, my heart quells, I'm with you. But if you want to get a group of people who aren't necessarily with you, we have to be much more sophisticated in pulling apart this. And we can't do it in 4,000 word stuff in 22 pages as to be short brief. A lie. Call out a lie for a lie. Find the 10 best lies, Yossi, or the worst lies. And that way, not just assuming, and that's when it goes back to what you said, when we just call them anti-Semitic. Yeah, no, no, I'm uh, totally, totally with you on that. That's, that's not useful. So that's let's get better. Useful. But from calling them anti-Semites to a values conversation, there is a wide spectrum in between that we need to explore. I'm with you on that, too. I'm with you on that, too. Last thoughts, Yossi? Yeah, I, I actually think that's, that was terrific, Alana. I, I think that among the three of us, we've come up with four languages here, four 
<laughs> we just keep going up to three. <laughs> but uh, four, four avenues of defense and offense. The first is, is yours, Ilana, a language about how defamation of the Jewish people works. The second language is something that you mentioned, Daniil, a language of defending ourselves specifically against accusations, proving where those accusations aren't accurate. The third is my favorite among the four languages, a language of moral outrage against those who would uh, defame us and criminalize us. Uh, and the fourth is a language of moral introspection, looking at our own flaws, looking at the policies we need to adopt. And so I think what we've really come to here is a nuanced and multifaceted approach. Now, uh, all we need to do is convince the Jewish community to adopt it, and we're in business. You see, I actually think there's a fifth. <laughs> <laughs> is it the language of Eliyahu? It's Elijah's no, 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 language? No, 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 all jokes aside, I think that if we're calling everything a language, it's not just moral introspection. I think it's about policy improvement. It's that when you wake up and you get a report like this and now you want to defend yourself, well, I'm sorry, you can't. If you don't have policies that give expression to your moral introspection, you know, on this issue, not on another issue, on this issue. So I think there's actually five. Wow. So first of all, I just want to thank Daniel and Yossi Klein Halevi. And as you know, if you listen to the whole podcast, Delana Stein-Hain, was fantastic. And her, her core, core talk was about the difference between legitimate critique, which she calls from Leviticus. It's good to critique somebody in a way that could legitimately help them enhance their own behavior. And what she calls defamation, where you were just sliming somebody as a gesture of hatred. And Alana talks about how in that tension between legitimate critique, tohacha, and defamation, motzi shemra, the amnesty report is entirely on the side of defamation. Um, and that uh, it's shocking to many people, many Jews, particularly of a certain age, who think Amnesty International must be all good, all progressive, all legitimate. It's really hard to realize that they're filled with anti-Semitism. And she, and her point in this is that we need to call out to people who love human rights and who love human rights organizations that we need to be able to hold a human rights organization accountable for Jew hatred, for defamation. And that that's an additional part of the conversation. So that was the Ilana part that we missed. So um, I wanna thank them for their really, I thought sparkling and intelligent and crisp and thoughtful and it, you know, comments on this complicated moment. And here's the question that I wanna ask all of you and invite the conversation around. Not what do you think about Amnesty International Report and not who do you think got the better of the argument? Those are interesting questions. That's not what I wanna focus on. What I wanna focus on is the Delta, the change that did listening to this conversation between Daniel and Yossi Klein Halevi and listening to Alana, if you happen to have heard it beforehand, did it change your thinking in any way? And if so, what is the nature of the change? So let me um, again invite people who want to add 
to this conversation now, uh, write in the chat function to Amy, and I would love to call on you. Um, while we're waiting for that, I will just share with you a completely changed, this uh, podcast completely changed my thinking, which is why the minute I, I mean, I happened to listen to what I was looking for. I, I was emailing and bothering Amy Klein all week. When is Hartman going to come out with a podcast? And the minute it came out, I just thirstily listened to it. And it changed my thinking because I was only speaking the language of moral outrage. I was so morally offended that on the eve of the Olympics in a country that has a concentration camp, they say nothing about China and all this one-sided business about Israel, that I could not entertain the merits of a moral conversation of a values conversation. I was blocked on a values conversation. Um, and I didn't want to hear uh, a language about the Israel we aspire to or the Israel we want to build or what, how could Israel be better. I found that offensive in light of the fact that 30s-style Jew hatred was now the official policy of, of this organization. And so it had the effect for me of closing off entirely a values conversation. Um, and when I, when I listened to, uh, and I was so deeply with Yassi Klein-Halevi, and then I just love and I mean, Daniel Hartman is my rabbi. And when I heard him talk, I just realized I needed to make space for the values conversation too. And then in the end, this idea of the five different languages, uh, moral outrage, which is my most fluent language here, um, uh, appreciating Alana's point about defamation versus critique, and this is defamation, uh, the introspection about the values conversation, and then the policy that uh, we could say we're not apartheid because we're doing policies A, B, C, D, E, F, and G, and then actually have policies A, B, C, D, E, F, and G. That whole, this 30 plus minute podcast really had that impact on my thinking. So um, I'd love to hear what impact it had on changing your thinking. Amy, do we have any takers? I will say there are no questions yet, but I'm going to make two points while somebody Please. types to me. Um, first is what struck me the most was when um, Alana says at the very end, it's a little different from what you just said. Alana talks about at the very end, if you're trying to reach people under 40, which was their cutoff for young, um, you have to first get them to realize that an organization that is so well-respected as Amnesty International is, you have to ask the question, is it possible that they would tell a lie about us? I mean, would, is it possible that they would treat us unfairly? And she says that whole mindset is di very different from what you may have been teaching your children all along, which was, hey, we're powerful people. They'll be good to us. We can speak up for ourselves. It was a very interesting shift that she had. That was right. one comment. The other thing that I learned or heard Danielle say again, and I apologize, it may not have been in this podcast. It may have been in the session with Gil Proust during the week. Um, 
If you speak only about moral outrage, no one is going to hear you. That as soon as you start focusing only on moral outrage, you, I guess he says it here about anti-Semitism. You yell anti-Semitism, they've stopped listening to you. And so, um, I, you know, I guess that's that's it. That's what I took away from it. Um, I'm now going to tell you, Mark Pazdansky has a um, question or a comment. Yeah, yeah. Before, uh, before we call him Mark, Amy, I just wanted to comment on your comment. Um, I think that Daniel's point is so really helpful for Temple Manual, because if I when I think about the voices of Temple Manual that I have heard, the loudest voices. Right. They're all moral outrage and legitimate moral outrage about the anti-Semitism of the report for all those reasons. And uh, when you think about Rob's talk, when you think about the Tomo conversation, when you think about all the emails that we've all been exchanging, it's all that moral outrage. But then Daniel's point is we don't want to be giving ourselves goosebumps and felling from our own moral outrage that we share, but we want to be persuading the unpersuaded, namely our children. We want to be persuading the unpersuaded, namely our grandchildren. And if moral outrage is not working for them, it just does not work for them, then we need to develop a different kind of argument in addition. So with that, Mark Poznanski, love your thoughts. Yeah, hi, thank you for this opportunity. And obviously, like probably many people on the line, we're eager to engage in discussion. But I would just say what, uh, given your question, focused on how did it change my thinking listening to the podcast was the point that given what's said up front that this is as close to you can get to modern blood libel Jews killed Christ the Jews collect blood from Gentiles to uh, put in matzah at Passover the, the protocols of the elder of Zion and now the amnesty a lot of people to speak 260 the 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 concern i have is the lack here in this sort of comfortable zoom conversation and very traditionally jewish sort of talmudic discussion of the urgency of now that people like martin luther king talked about we are desensitized by a continuing pressure of our existence whether through directed anti-semitism or uh, amnesty international support that leads us to think, well, this is just another one, and we, we've got time, and we can, they'll be just, you know, they're turning the screws, but the screw wasn't that tight, and we can discuss and have five different languages. There's an urgency of now here, and I think the focus that I was glad to hear was on teaching to the young. My son, at a very good school in Boston, is regularly told by his other kids that his support for Israel represents a red flag to them. Okay, this is like anti-Semitism ongoing. There's a table where he is that's pro-Amnesty International. There's a pro-Palestinian table. There's no pro-Israel table. There's no pro-Jewish table there. And he has to go by this every day. So, you know, this is not time for discussion for another few years and see what happens. This is now. And I, I, I'm concerned by the relaxed nature and cheery nature of the discussion. So Mark, I, I um, embrace most of what you say, except for the cheery nature of the discussion. That is, I mean, I think what they're both saying is that the Amnesty International report that nobody's reading, it's actually 260 pages, not 220 pages. It's not about the 220 pages. It is about the word cloud 
that this Amnesty International report creates and strengthens and deepens around Israel, which is Israel equals apartheid. You don't need to read the 260 pages. And then it becomes morally embarrassing to support Israel when you're outside of Temple Emanuel and other safe Jewish spaces. When you go to you know, whatever university you go to or when you're in your high school club and you're a Jewish kid who loves Israel and gets Israel, uh, it becomes morally embarrassing to support Israel, which is racist, which is apartheid, which is guilty of war crimes, which is guilty of genocide. That is a lot to put on young Aviad Poznanski's shoulders when he's at a, 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 a you know, school with a whole, it's not just a Jewish space and it's not a safe Jewish space. And now he is supporting a, uh, a state and a philosophy of Zionism that is broadly word clouded with racism, genocide, apartheid, evil Nazi. That's a lot on Aviad's shoulders. That's a lot on all of our shoulders. So I, I get that. There's nothing insouciant, casual, or cheery about that conversation. Um, I think that they're, what they're, their conversation is around fighting that culture with fire. But also, I think they make this point, which is when you are a kid, like your kid, like our kids who go off to college, and everybody you know thinks that Israel is apartheid, or many people you know outside of safe Jewish spaces think that Israel is apartheid, then it starts creating doubts in your own mind, in your own internal mind. What are they, you know, what's going on? Maybe, maybe what, what about the content? What I get, what about the content? And that we have to actually be able to talk to that as well. Aviad's problem is not just the Gentile context in which he lives. Aviad's problem is that most kids that he knows in high school and college are gonna share these thoughts and that, that can trigger doubts in all of our children. And so we have to be able to speak to that as well. Not cheery or insouciant, serious as a heart attack. Um, next, next question, thought or comment from this group. Uh, Emmanuel Sachs. Who's that? <clears throat> ah, yes. Yes. Hi, thank you so much. Uh, I'm, I'm actually going to read a very short piece that I wrote so that I say it uh, as effectively as possible. Uh, I loved uh, the podcast. And as I was listening to the discussion, my thoughts went to the concept of the big lie, especially the most effective type of big lie, where there are in fact tiny aspects of truth, which are then distorted into the big lie. Arguably, Hitler invented the modern version of the big lie in Mein Kampf. The amnesty big lie is a total lack of balance and perspective. But I also reflected on the intersection of two thoughts. One, the repetitive nature of attacks on Jews, which come when we are successful. Sure, we've been attacked even when we were struggling, but a special category is when we are successful. Our treatment by the Egyptians was stated as being due to our success and the threat this represented. Of course, I'm referring to the biblical uh, uh, treatment. My instinctive, the second point is my instinctive uncomfort with the sense that remaining in limbo on the Palestinian issue is okay. 
that we can, as I've heard said, periodically, quote, mow the grass, that the Israeli military has unparalleled capability in the region, including nuclear, and so we will be okay. I came out thinking that our response to amnesty should be to call out big lies, both generally and this one specifically, which is to say that we have to acknowledge that there are some shreds of truth in the amnesty report and that perhaps we have grown complacent in some ways, yet these shreds of truth have been grossly distorted into a big lie. But there are other big lies that are tearing our country apart. There are big lies uh, elsewhere in the world as well. By elevating the conversation to include other big lies, we lend credibility to our argument about the amnesty big lie. There's also real science to be done on the big lie, encompassing psychology, political science, and especially an understanding of the modern media. We can make a real contribution to humanity, which also helps our own case and make it in a way that may appeal to our own young people. Thanks, thanks for listening. Ellie, thank you for that. Um, can I just uh, follow up by asking, that's a statement that you read. Can you just speak from your heart about um, what was the impact of the podcast, the dialogue in the podcast, on changing your thinking, or did your thinking not change? No, I, 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 loved, I loved the podcast, and um, when, when I heard the different voices, they all resonated uh, uh, for me, uh, um, uh, all, all three of the voices uh, resonated tremendously. Uh, what, what, what changed was that, my reaction, uh, the, the, the conversation went in the direction of multiple languages. And uh, somehow at the end, it went from three to five. I'm not sure how that happened exactly, but, right. but uh, up, up to three, I was totally there. It made total sense. And somehow, perhaps it was when it got pushed to four and five, I said, wait a minute, wait a minute. This is multiple languages is, is the most obvious answer, but I'm not sure it's the right answer. And so, so I started to look for a unifying theme. Mm. And, and the one that came to me was the big lie. Because it. it allows you to tell all aspects of, of, this, of, of the story, all three. Thank you, Ellie. Thank you so much for that. It was super thoughtful. Thank you, Ellie. Uh, so uh, thank you, Mark. Thank you, Ellie. Any other voices would Steve love Bookbinder. to hear? Steve Bookbinder has something he wanted to share. Please, Steve, we'd love to hear your thoughts. Oh, Steve Broder, okay. Oh, Steve Broder. It was love Steve to, oh. Bookbinder, Brian. Steve Bookbinder, we'd love to hear your thoughts. If you can unmute, please. Yeah. <clears throat> um, you asked me, <clears throat> I had listened to the podcast before. You asked me, um, you asked us how it changed our thinking. I think the the thought about the five languages uh, changed my thinking um, and it changed your thinking um, that there was a way to respond to this. I actually don't think that there, that there are five languages. I think there are basically two. Uh, the language of 
defamation of outrage is one group and the language of moral introspection and policy improvement is another. Um, I think I, I must disagree a little bit with the notion that somehow, and I have read almost all of this report, that somehow this is the equivalent of Jews using blood for matzah. It is the people who are in Amnesty International are, I would say, just you know, misled in many ways and they are misleading as a result. The question for me is, is there a way to reach those people? And I've not given up on reaching those people, nor have I given up on reaching the people which, who have Jewish voices for peace. If there was one disappointment I had in the podcast is that it never dealt with the specifics. There is Israel proper and there are the occupied territories. And I at least am on the side of, we've got to do both of these two languages. We've got to reach out and make clear, not in some sort of screaming way about anti-Semitism, but rather how you have misled, been misled and are misleading. And in turn, also make sure that people understand there's moral introspection. I was profoundly changed by several trips to the West Bank and I urge everyone to go to the West Bank. It is not surprising if you travel to Eish Kodesh to a hilltop settlement, which we did with Hartman and to Rechelim settlements that have been on expropriated land where you travel on separate roads that someone can have the impression that there is something called apartheid on the occupied territories. This is not Steve Bookbinder's opinion. This is Ehud Barak. This is Ehud Oldmerk. This is also the opinion of even Arik Sharon. And going back to 1968, Yeshayahu Leibowitz, who said, once we become an occupied territory, there is a toll, a terrible toll, as Danielle said. So for me, the question becomes, what is the right time to do both? And it is damn hard to do both, moral introspection and also to engage with those people at Amnesty International and to engage with young people. Constant talk about millennials. I'm just, I'm not confused, but I hold opinions that are not shared by perhaps some of my peers. And there are others like us. So I just like to say, I thought it was a great conversation it leads us in a new direction. And my question is, what are we gonna do about trying to engage people who really are misled? Yeah. So Steve, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. I, I'm always with you, Steve. I, as, as you know, I love your voice and I love your values and I love your heart and soul. So I'm, I'm, I, I'm always drawn to your voice um, and I'd be with you here. My only problem that holds me from being fully with you is the Amnesty International Report, it's what Daniel said, which is their claim is not that the sin of Israel is 67. Their claim is not that the sin of Israel is what you're calling occupied territories. Their claim is that the sin of Israel is its existence, it's 48. That's a big paradigmatic difference. If the sin of Israel is 67, we can have your conversation. If the sin of Israel, so to speak, sin in quotation marks is 48, 
what they're really saying is we don't, we have no basis for existence. That is the point of view of this report. Uh, that's listim atem. That's the first Rashi on the first pasuk. Uh, you're you're thieves for any of this land. Uh, Jews just shouldn't own this land. Um, and and to claim otherwise is morally embarrassing. That's the word cloud associated with this. And then it gets very hard to have that 67 conversation when they're claiming that the sin is 48. Um, but I, um, right, that's why it's so complicated. I want to just- I, I agree. Yeah. I, I just want to say, I agree with you totally. My point is that, is there a way to engage with Amnesty International to, to make sure that they understand what is really so disturbing to the vast majority of Jews and right. what it is that we're also trying to do about the other parts. And the right. only part I disagreed with today in the conversation between Yassi and uh, Danielle was they never got into the specifics of how do we make sure that right. we proceed further. Thanks right. for letting me speak. Thank you. So here's, I wanna, I wanna bring this to a close with, um, with the name that came to my mind, both the first and second time that I heard this, and with a um, with a an invitation. The name that came to my mind the first and second time I heard this was a, our member Gary Oren, you know, who teaches a class on persuasion at the Kennedy School. And if you've ever Gary taught this to the lay leadership of the synagogue a few years ago, and his very first principle, Gary's first principle is know your audience. That's the first principle. Know who it is that you are talking to. And I thought a lot about that in connection with these multiple voices. And by the way, I, I, like, I like two voices much more than five, the voice of moral outrage and the voice of moral introspection. And I think keeping Gary Oren's first principle in mind is really helpful. Uh, that is to say, uh, it, both voices are important. And, and, and the question is, who are you talking to? Um, the second thing I would say is, um, I cannot recommend highly enough for like, what's now, what now, what now, what's the next step? Three magic words, go to Israel, go to Israel on our Hartman trip this year. Uh, I'm going to Israel on our Hartman trip this year. I was just in Israel for personal reasons to see my 94 year old father, but Hartman is going to be in person this year. As you know, it's been two years since uh, the last two years was online this year. It's in person. And what I will tell you is that Daniel is um, wherever you are, but wherever you are on the spectrum of you, you, you side more naturally with moral outrage at the anti-Semitism, that's where I am. That's my center of gravity. Uh, or whether you are more, your, your center of gravity is more with the moral introspection. What kind of Israel do we want to create? And what's the gap and what's the work to create it? Wherever you are, both of those views are fully embodied and fully lived out at Hartman. And you will be going on and you'll be going to places in Israel that you would only go to at Hartman. You will go to uh, the West Bank, you'll go to Yehuda and Shamron, whatever your terminology is. And you'll meet both with um, Israelis who live there and, and Palestinians who live there. Uh, you will go to um, Haredi communities, you'll see all the multiple faces of Israel in their own land, speaking to people about the issues of the day. And so I think that I love Hartman podcasts. I love Hartman Torah. But the, what's even better than Hartman podcasts and Hartman Torah is going to Hartman in person 
Um, I'm going to be going. We have about 12 people who have already signed up. I realize that there's uncertainty with, with Omicron and COVID and all that, all that new cycle that we've been living for two plus years. But I'm telling you, it's happening. I'm telling you, I'm going to be there. Amy and Brian are going to be there. We have 12 people. I think the time is now to go to Israel and continue the conversation in person in that place that is so beautiful and so complicated and so ours and so the subject of world conversation and all too often condemnation all at the same time. Let's do it together. Thank you all for being here and let's continue the conversation in person in Israel. Boker Tov.